Matt, and I am here this afternoon for a little pipeweed on the porch conversation with Trish Lambert, who is a current student at the Mythgard Institute and who is also uh, uh, serving as co-host of the Riddles in the Dark Digest with Dave Kao and has been helping us with the Riddles in the Dark stuff lately. And uh, Trish wrote a very interesting paper for uh, the Lewis and Tolkien class that I taught in the spring at Mythgard. And uh, we wanted to talk about that because, of course, it's relevant to uh, a lot of the sort of stuff that's going on, thinking about The Hobbit and The Hobbit movie and everything else that's coming up. And she wrote her paper on on The Hobbit and Snow White, uh, thinking, which a lot of people don't even realize how closely those two things uh, came out together, the sort of the coincidence between the emergence of Tolkien and the emergence of Walt Disney uh, at, at around the same time. And I had never given that a moment's thought in my entire life uh, until <laughs> Trisha's paper, and I was really interested to think about this. So I thought it would make a, a fun topic of conversation. So welcome, Trish. Well, thank you very much. You know, we should actually let the listeners know that even though we're calling this pipeweed on the porch, neither of us actually smoke. Yes, exactly. No, it's <laughs> always very purely figuratively pipeweed for me. <laughs> uh, I, I really appreciate the ideal of pipeweed and smoking that Tolkien depicts in his books, um, though it is true that real life smoking i find rather repugnant but uh but but i always like the idea of it the way tolkien describes it uh yeah i know in middle earth in middle earth i guess it must not have any health consequences whatsoever apparently not you know so yeah that's uh it's pretty cool that's lovely that's lovely but anyway so 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 uh tell everybody some more about uh snow white and the hobbit let's first start with basically sort of the the historical and chronological facts of which i think a lot of people probably aren't really aware yeah, you know, it's interesting because I would like you, it hadn't really dawned on me. And I think it just happened in passing that I noticed that Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which I had already, of course, known was sort of this landmark uh, uh, movie because it was sure. Disney's. It was not only Disney's, but it was the very first full-length animated feature ever. Um, but it was interesting when I noticed that uh, it, she was also having her 75th anniversary. And I looked at the dates closer and I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, the publication of The Hobbit and the release of Snow White were literally within months of one another. And so I started looking to this further. And then I got to thinking about the two men, because whether you like them or not, both Walt Disney and J.R.R. Tolkien are, you know, giants among the fantasy in the fantasy genre these days Absolutely. and to have this be so close and track so close i i kind of wanted to look a little closer not only at the stories themselves but at the men themselves so um basically in, it, the hobbit was released in london in england in september 1937 mm-hmm. december 1937 snow white and the seven dwarfs came out in the u.s the following year the princess and the hobbit went across the ocean in opposite directions. And so we got The Hobbit by Houghton Mifflin in 1938, and Britain got Snow White in 1938. So they are very close together. Yeah, that's, that's, that really is a remarkable thing. Because, of course, as soon as you think about it, um, you know, you start noticing this stuff, right? I mean, like, you've got the, you've got the incredible coincidence of the party of dwarves. Right. Um, which is such a coincidence that, that you know, you, I mean, as you were asking in your paper, like, it's, you know, one, one has to ask, like, is there any influence one direction or the other? Is it just a coincidence that these two guys told these same, uh, you know, sort of groundbreaking fantasy stories containing a large party of dwarves at 
at the same I time. I know. I know. And also, you had mentioned to me a while back about John Ratliff in his book makes a note, and I actually mentioned this in my paper, and it's just a passing note in his book, but the fact that until Tolkien wrote The Hobbit, dwarves in his legendarium had not been good guys. Yeah, it's one of the big uh, sort of mysteries, I guess, if you want to call it a mystery about The Hobbit, is, um, of course, it doesn't strike anybody um, who comes to Tolkien's works the way that people normally do. That is, if you start off reading The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, you begin with this idea of these noble dwarves who are, you know, who have their, their, their issues, you know, I mean, you know, Thorin has his gold problem and we know that dwarves tend to be, uh, you know, vengeful and secretive and, you know, it's, 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 as I say, it's not that they don't have issues, but basically they're, 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 they're free folk. They're part of the good guys. Um, and, but, you know, John Ratliff makes a great point of this in his book, The History of the Hobbit, that if you came to The Hobbit from the other direction, that is chronologically from Tolkien's works in his lifetime, if you go back and look at the writings Tolkien had been doing leading up to The Hobbit, The Hobbit, of course, though it was the first um, you know, major work of fiction he published, was certainly not the first one that he wrote. He had been writing stuff which would later on eventually become The Silmarillion for a long time, um, including the stuff which was published by Christopher Tolkien as the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 1 and 2, um, back in the teens and 20s. And if you if you read all that stuff, all of the Silmarillion, the, the Book of Lost Tales stuff, the uh, the Lays of Beleriand, which are these, you know, these long poetic versions of the story of Turin Turambar and the story of Beren and Luthien um, that he had been writing just before he was writing The Hobbit, all of this stuff, you look at all this stuff, and the dwarves don't look anything like Thorin and company. I mean, they're right. bad guys. They're 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 allies with the orcs. They're lumped in with orcs and trolls. Um, as in fact, you know, sometimes they're included in the category called children of Morgoth. So, uh, I, the d- dwarves are not just you know people who you know like good guys who have issues with elves and 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 are you know tend to be secretive. They were genuine villains. Um, as is more consistent, dwarves usually are villains. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, at, 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 you know, many, you know, like Norse epics at medieval literature, dwarves are usually, you know, sometimes dwarves in medieval literature are comparatively, um, you know, are just sort of like servant figures. I'm thinking, for instance, of Sir Thomas Mallory when, um, you know, occasionally you'll have a dwarf serving as like a squire to a knight. Um, right. You know, and uh, yeah, in, in uh, <laughs> leading to one of my favorite moments uh, in Mallory in the tale of Sir Gareth, when Sir Gareth's dwarf gets stolen by somebody and he goes pelting after him saying, give me back my dwarf, give me back my dwarf. But anyway, um I, Hilarity ensues, but 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 anyway, you know, in general, they were they were really nasty. So uh, so Thorin and company, when they show up uh, at Bilbo's house in in uh, in in the Hobbit, all of a sudden they're good guys, and there's no transition, there's no explanation. We don't see. I mean, apparently Tolkien has just at this time when he wrote the Hobbit changed his mind and decided to make the dwarves good guys, um, and or at least mostly good guys. Uh, and that's just that it, in 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 the context of Tolkien's imagined, you know, sort of his 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 sub creation that came out of nowhere. 
Um, so again, that's another thing to say. Like all of a sudden, there are these like friendly dwarves showing up, and you know, at the same time that we have this other this other you know sort of dwarf film. Now, of course, Snow White is based on the Brothers Grimm, and you know, we've got right. we 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 get that story in the Brothers Grimm. We get it in Andrew Lang, you know, called Snowdrop, and there are right. dwarves in there that are relatively kindly. Um, I mean, they don't do anything mean. They they kind of adopt Snowdrop. They're kind of non characters, uh, especially in, in Andrew Lang's version, they don't really do much uh, other than find her and then tell her, give her good advice, which she completely ignores, and then mourn <laughs> after her when she dies again. Um, as she dies several times because the character of Snowdrop in that story is just about the dumbest character I have ever seen. <laughs> I mean, like, the Wicked Witch poisons her three separate times and she falls for it every single time. And the dwarfs are like, don't take anything from anybody who comes by the house trying to give you something. And she's like, well, surely this old lady is an exception. Anyway. Um, but, so the dwarves... The dwarves are, 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 are relatively neutral in that. Um, so again, it's not it's not a shock to see where Disney was kind of coming from in having his. And of course, like the dwarves aren't 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 nearly so sort of slapstick and comical uh, in the uh, source stories as Disney makes them. But right. but it's certainly not like a massive departure. Uh, but anyway, yeah, there it is. So you've got these you've got these unexpectedly benign dwarves. <laughs> Uh, in Tolkien showing up uh, to be the, you know, the numerous and I would add largely faceless sidekick sidekicks, um, you know, despite the fact that Peter Jackson is, you know, going to make some of them hot and some of them funny and uh, and everything else in the film, in the book, you know, most of the dwarves are pretty indis- indistinguishable from each other. Right. Um, and, and very few of them get any dialogue at all of any note. Um and have any role that differentiates them. Thorin, obviously, Balin is important. Um, Fiwi and Kiwi get kind of separated out together, but never distinguished from each other. Uh, and uh, never, no, not really. And, well, and you know something? Yeah. It's interesting because Disney, because, you know, Jackson has specifically said, and of course we see this with, you know, the characters and we've been introduced to all the dwarves, right. that Jackson has gone to, you know, much lengths to actually individuate, is that yes. a word, yes. each dwarf and give them their own personality. Disney did the same thing. He right. felt the need to do the same thing. And so there's actually a scene in, in, I think it's when we see them at the, we first see the dwarves on at the mines in Snow White. Mm-hmm. He, you know, you get to know all the dwarves. And actually the pre, pre-release pre media and promotion, very much like Jackson, did a lot of here are the seven dwarves here are their names here are their characteristics it's really interesting i mean it tracks almost parallel yeah that's it's very interesting and of course you can see how you can see how his um Disney, that is, uh, how his names are designed to emphasize that, right? I mean, he's got them named by their primary characteristics so that you only have to remember the one thing, right? You just have to, like, see this dwarf and associate sleepiness with it, and you've got right. Sleepy the Dwarf. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so yeah, but, but yeah, again, even their names. Like, we, you don't even have to remember two things about him. Like, this is his name, and he's kind of sleepy. Like, you just have to remember <laughs> the one thing. 
<laughs> that dude is sleepy. Um, so, uh, so yeah, yeah, clearly. And, and I think that that's interesting. And of course, you, you can see why. I mean, it's very understandable in both, uh, for both uh, filmmakers, for, that is, for both, both for Jackson and Disney. You know, you can have in a book a large crowd of relatively faceless people, and the reader's not going to be bothered by it because unless that particular character is for some reason drawn to our attention, we can just be told, like, you know, the dwarves did this, the dwarves went there, the dwarves ran down the hill, uh, and and we're fine. Like we, So we can picture a group of dwarves, and we can separate them or we cannot. Um, but to actually show them on screen and have, like, a bunch of people that you can't tell who's who, and it's just like this throng of... And then, you know... It's it it has a very different effect. Plus, there's no merchandising them. opportunities if you well, do it that way. Right, exactly, and of course, both uh, both the Warner Brothers people and the Disney people were uh, were very quick on that. And that's another thing that I didn't even really know about about Snow White. I think a lot of people would sort of uh, might assume that uh, you know Disney, you know, I, I mean. Everybody knows how, you know, mercenary Disney is nowadays on merchandising and everything else. Um, And, you know, a lot of people might assume that that's sort of a modern phenomenon and kind of imagine that, like, back in the days of classic Disney, you know, that he was making these films for, um, you know, for, like, serious artistic purposes and that, you know, now it's all been (laughs) cheapened. Um, But, uh, again, in your paper, you were showing that that was really not at all the case. No, in fact, yeah, he he was quoted as saying, you know, saying, "We just do movies, and you professors tell us what it is we did, or something like that." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's the, the the merchandising. I mean, I was fascinated. Oh, the merchandising. Learn, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh, yeah. I mean, you know, we didn't. It, it's like we had. It was the 1930s version of you know McDonald's Happy Meals. I mean, I actually read a list of the kinds of things that were getting merchandised for this movie, and you know, we. I think today we seem to think that this is a relatively recent thing, but not. I mean, think of all the things, the Legos and the Pez dispensers and everything you could think of today. There was an analog for that back then with this film. And that's another thing. You know, people might think, well, maybe Tolkien was, you know, here he is at his little ivory tower in Oxford. You know, he was, you know, probably not even aware. Oh, he was aware. He had to be aware. First of all, he had an eight-year-old daughter at home, you know, who I'm sure was very – you know, aware, if not, you know, clamoring for some of this stuff. His wife couldn't possibly go to the store without seeing, you know, Snow White on the dish soap or, or something. <laughs> right. So he definitely knew it was coming. And, and I mean, I, in Britain in particular, I mean, I, the, one of the sources that I found said the merchandising and the media splash was enormous before this movie came out. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, again, it's, it's, it's a fascinating context. I mean, I, 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 I don't see any, and you know, in your paper, you were saying that there's, it's, it's hard to, uh, to see any reason to suspect any actual crossover, any actual right. influence between one and the other. I mean, there were two simultaneous for that. Um, right. uh, I mean, there was no way back in the early thirties when Tolkien was first writing the Hobbit that he had, you know, any idea, I mean, that Disney was doing this feature when right. was it that Disney announced that he was going to do it? It was several years before 30s. It was a 30. Yeah, it was like third. Well, he actually, uh, one of the things that I didn't, that ended up on the cutting room floor is a little story that's told by one of the guys that told about this, that in 1930, an evening in 1934, he got all of his animators into a soundstage and, and two hours, Disney enacted this whole entire story all by himself and said, <laughs> this is going to be our movie. 
<laughs> All right. And that was in 1934. Now, Humphrey Carpenter in Tolkien's biography has set 3132 for the approximate time that to- he believes Tolkien started The Hobbit. Yeah. So, you know, again, we're kind of in the same time frame, but they're in totally different worlds. Right. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, and there's there's absolutely no reason to think. That, I mean, it's 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 almost utterly impossible uh, that Disney could have had any idea what Tolkien was doing. Right. As I mean, this was such a, a small scale project until it was published. Um, and uh, and yeah, even though Disney was in '34, by then The Hobbit was written. So so yeah, no, there's there's no way that they could have influenced each other directly. But yeah, that the really interesting kind of crossover is. To me, that the merchandising stuff is what mm-hmm. makes it particularly fascinating. And um, Tolkien, right at the moment when his book was being released um, and people were reading this story of his uh, in which he had made this significant, certainly within his own world, this significant choice to put dwarves uh, in this uh, sort of heroic um ultimately heroic, anyway, role. (laughs) Um, Now he's surrounded by, you know, little plastic dopey dolls uh, and everything. Um, And so, you know, his his reactions to that, um, you did a great job of sort of summarizing uh, Tolkien's uh, negative reactions to Disney. Um, He did not like Disney at all. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. why don't you sort of uh, share some of those some of those viewpoints that he that he had and shared and also if you could if if you have them do you have the dates with those yeah i think i do actually yeah, the, it, the, you know it's interesting we have actually very few um published or available to us comments from tolkien on disney which i consider to be suspicious <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I have a feeling that there was probably a lot more that he had to say. But let me just share some of the things. First of all, and also, he and C.S. Lewis went to see the movie together, by the way, in 39. And I, I'll also share in a moment, if you want, what Lewis had to say, especially about the dwarves. He, did, yes. he hated the dwarves. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, actually, before the movie came out, this is interesting because – and people have noticed this. But, again, we go back to the merchandising thing, and this could be where it came from. Um, sorry, I have my – we do – do we have an analog to a parrot in Tolkien? I don't know, but actually it's <laughs> He's in another nice. room it's, it's yelling sort of at me. A, it's sort of um, a, like a... It, trying it, to find it, it here. It, oh, okay. It gives us her... He says, uh, when he's talking about... And so 1937, so this is before uh, Snow White came out, uh, he writes what's a pretty famous quote from him now, where he talks about that he loathes anything uh, from uh, Disney Studios. He was talking about anything... Uh, the. Um, uh, illustrators for the U.S. version of The Hobbit. He'd like it to be uh, – uh, he, he he'd vote, veto anything from or influenced by the Disney Studios for all of whose works I have a heartfelt loathing. Right. Now, this was like six months before the movie came out. But again, you know, we're having this huge merchandising thing going on. And right, the movie's so, already come out in in the States, I think. Yeah. or No, it actually hasn't come out in the States yet. But he knows it's it's there. And he's, I'm sure, been aware of the shorts. Yeah, you know, animated shorts. Exactly. That that was the so the, uh, the thing that I think is really important to comment on. There, he knew Disney b- prior to the release of Snow White. That it wasn't right. just Snow. White. So again, and that to me shows, um, you know, the the coincidence of the dwarves and the fact that Disney is doing the fairy tale thing, and of course with with Tolkien's own interest in fairy stories, it's you know it's impossible. Even if we didn't have the direct information, it would be impossible to imagine that Tolkien wouldn't have 
you know, taken some interest in and, uh, uh, you know, and made some comment upon Snow White when it happened. But it is interesting to see that evidence that he already knew about Disney before Snow White, that, that he was, you know, so he was already well aware prior to the release of the film um, because he specified he wanted nothing in the Disney style uh, in his, uh, in the illustrations of The Hobbit. Right, right. Um, so that that's interesting, you know. So so like like I said, I think at one point in the paper, I suspect Disney was really not all that aware of Tolkien, but I, it, I think Tolkien was painfully aware of Disney. Yeah. <laughs> and interestingly enough, the next uh, the next time the next date I have anything for him mentioning Disney is actually been something that's been deleted um, in the book that uh, Verlin Flieger and Douglas Anderson wrote about the on fairy stories speech and essay. S- I should say essays because there were different versions. Of it, yeah. um, she said, or they said that um, there one of the emendations to the written version of On Fairy Stories, or one of the, I think from one, from like version one to version two, or draft A to final, was the removal of a disparaging footnote reference to the work of Disney, criticized for uniting be- beautiful external detail with inner vulgarity. Inner so that's and that's a quote. That's a quote from what he had said in his footnote. And I have a feeling somebody counseled him to eliminate that from his essay. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, here's the thing that's – the other thing that's interesting to me about this is that he gave that Andrew Lang lecture in – what was it? 1938, right? Uh, yes. Well, he went – this so, – so Snow White was very much in pre, – present in Britain, and I believe he actually went to see – Snow White, right around that time, I have it written down in here somewhere. So, so Snow White and her dwarves were like very present in Britain at the time that he gave this lecture, and there is literally no direct reference to it whatsoever in his lecture. Now, I think, I think if you look closely, there are probably some, a fair amount of indirect references to it. Yes. You know, and kind of some of the ways that he says stuff. But I just found that also an interesting time juxtaposition. So then the next um, – same year, 1946, this is also in his letters. He um, sends a note to Stanley Unwin, who's you know uh, his London publisher, about a German translation of The Hobbit and about some illustrations again. And he says, I'm afraid that the illustrations are too Disney-fied. Bilbo with a dribbling nose and Gandalf a figure of vulgar fun rather than the Odinic warrior I, that I think of. So – all, you know, Disney means pejorative in his, in his vernacular. Yes, and notice there with Gandalf in particular the 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 way that Tolkien is contrasting. Uh, he's associating Disney characters with vulgarity and contrasting that with the Norse figure, right? Uh, the Odinic wanderer. Um, right. And that, of course, again, has a lot of relevance uh, for the dwarf question, as, of course, the dwarves uh, in The Hobbit are all, you know, their names are taken, right. f- you know, from the Edda. So they're, uh, th- they are vaguely Norse anyway. They're not strictly Norse, but they're, they're you know, sort of vaguely Norse in, uh, in origin, uh, at least in some ways. And uh, the... And so, so yeah. So again, there, I think that we can see some, you know, some of what he's sort of wanting to differentiate there. Um, that 
the the accusation of vulgarity i think is 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 very interesting and that creeps up a that comes up a lot that kind of almost becomes his standard word whenever he you know talks about disney i mean here's another another example here is in a letter to his aunt um his aunt i guess had written a, a letter saying something about that the, the story of the pied piper was very popular among children and tolkien wrote back to her and he said i'm sorry about the pied piper i loathe it god help the children <laughs> He says, I would soon give them crude and vulgar plastic toys, which, of course, they will play with to the ruin of their taste. Terrible presage of the most vulgar elements of Disney. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, of course, Disney was associated with those vulgar p- plastic toys right. that were filling the shelves when Snow White came out. So, so yeah, that's that. that, that I mean, he's using that. Uh, as a simile there, right? That he, you know, he's yes. comparing the Disney treatment to a vulgar plastic toy. But of course, they were the source. It was also the source of so many vulgar plastic toys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 you, this is the thing, and I mean, vul- vulgarity, and and it's Lewis's too. Lewis also, you know, calls it him vulgar, which which you know prompted me to think. Ah, there were a few conversations in the Bird and the Baby about Uncle Walt. I'm imagining <laughs> yeah, that seems possible. and his dwarves. Yes. Now the next one is kind. Kind of interesting. This actually is not part of his letters. It's a letter that came up um, on auction in Sotheby's uh, auction house. I'm trying to think how long ago it was. I can't remember. But the letter itself is written in 1964. Um, and in it, he says, writing of Disney, he says, I recognize his talent, but it has always seemed to me hopelessly corrupted. Though in many of the pictures proceeding from his studios, there are admirable or charming passages. The effect of all of them, uh, of all of them is to me disgusting. Some have given me nausea. <laughs> Okay, but Tolkien, tell us how you really feel about yeah, it. Yeah, right. like, okay, you, Ronald, you, tell us what you really yeah, think. You really shouldn't hold back like that, Tolkien. I well, don't... I'll tell you, and he doesn't hold back because he <laughs> goes on in this letter and, and says t- directly about Disney, calls him simply a cheat, willing and even eager to defraud the less experienced by trickery sufficiently legal to keep him out of jail. I should not have given any proposal from Disney, any consideration at all. I am not all that poor. <laughs> I know, and I looked into that, and actually, that was the year that Mary Poppins came out yep. on, in the theaters. And the the author, P.L. Travers of the Mary Poppins books, English author, was apparent had a real love hate thing going on. I Disney apparently did kind of do a little bit of a of a bait and switch with her in terms of her um, artistic uh, power over mm-hmm. the movie, mm-hmm. and she was virulently. You know, what's the word? Uh, loud about her complaints. Right. And I have a – so there's speculation that this – his – what's called example Disney is kind of based on the story that Travis – because you would imagine they probably knew one another even if just – Lightly. Well, and it's the kind of story that I would think that he would be sensitive to at this time. I mean, 64, so we're talking about it's not all that long ago that he himself was embroiled in the issue with the unauthorized ace book publication of right. The Lord of the Rings. Right. And uh, that, I mean, I still have one of the uh, one of the copies, um, you know, my, my oldest ed- my oldest edition of The Hobbit, the one that I read when I was eight, um, is one of the old uh, purple emu editions uh, that is, you know, like with that freaked out oh, cover that, that has the purple emus on it. Yeah. <laughs> and like these huge, like pink 
globular hanging fruits and it's stuff. Like something from uh, it looks like something from Lewis's uh, Venus fantasy. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. It does. It, it, it would be a much more fitting cover to Paralandra than to the Hobbit. Um, but anyway, it's also one of those that contains uh, that sort of authorial, that kind of uh, you know, sort of. Uh, grumpy and formal, yes. I mean, very justified authorial note on the back that says this edition and this edition only has been authorized and right. those who approve of courtesy at the very least to living authors will purchase it and no other, um, you know, because it, the, these other, you know, uh, books, so, you know, basically he was being, he was being cheated and, and his book was being, um, you know, un- unlawfully published. So, yeah, so, I mean, he had had his own experience right. of, uh, you know, of being messed around with like this as an author. So I'm sure that, he, you know, g- especially given how much he already clearly loathed Disney. Disney. And his work. Oh, he was like fertile ground for oh, yeah. Travers, I mean, you know, exactly. to hear the story. He Interestingly enough, yeah. as a side note, by the way, I found a, uh, a reference in the, in the Tolkien Companion. You know, the two volume, this was in, actually in the second volume, that Joy Hill at uh, Allen and Unwin in 1966, actually, she was responsible for p- promoting Tokyo to the media, actually sent Lord of the Rings to Disney Studios. Now, <laughs> I don't have any, you know, I, it's got to be without his knowledge. Oh, got to I be. I mean, there's no way. And then, but here's the thing, the studio declined on the basis of the high cost to make such a film. Yeah. Well, can you I mean, imagine what would have happened if they'd been interested? Well, I mean, it wouldn't have happened, but well, I mean, yeah. Tolkien would have probably had a, you know, his top of his head would have blown off. What would have happened is we would have gotten a lot more material for this conversation because we would have, we would have <laughs> had, or media. perhaps it would have been hidden in a box somewhere. But boy, like imagining, like, sort of imagining the smoke emerging from the cracks in the envelope that the that uh, <laughs> held the letter he sent to to Alan and Unwin. Um, oh, like imagine. Oh, Oh my God! Oh, I mean, you know, I and I wonder if he ever did find out about it. I mean, I don't know if he did. I mean, there's no evidence that he did. But boy, if he did, I mean, he would have been just given <laughs> given some of the letters that I've read that he wrote. I mean, he was a he real grump sometimes, and this would have just really made him grumpy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now you 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 mentioned also uh, some of the things that C.S. Lewis said about it, which I think you know. Of course, you know, as always, I always feel like I have to give this disclaimer. You know, sometimes people, you know, knowing that Lewis and Tolkien were friends, will look at one things that one of them or the other said and basically sort of speak as if they both agree right, on everything right. and you know a quote from one is a quote from the other and that is not true of course you know so what C.S. Lewis says doesn't mean that that's how Tolkien felt but but I think that we can see some pretty clear similarities between their their assessments right. of, of, of Snow White in particular and uh, Disney in general. Well and the, the thing that's interesting actually with Lewis and I don't you know I, I, I'm so tempted to make some inferences here which we of course I can't substantiate at all but he, he actually saw it twice I mean when he went to see it with Tolkien it was the second time he'd seen it. Mm-hmm. He and his brother went to see it first. That's interesting because Warren Lewis was <laughs> he considered the film Warren considered the m- f- movie first rate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And he loved the house cleaning scene with the with the dwarves, you know. The dwarves, so. <laughs> exactly. I almost feel like Lewis may have said to, you know, Tallers, "Listen, go see this with me because I need somebody who you know agrees with me to go see this movie." <laughs> I'm not seeing it with Warney again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, like, but so Lewis, of course, in his in his so 
I don't know. Should we call it snarky? I mean, I love what he says. So, I mean, it's just kind of fun. But he's in one letter to a BBC producer, he said, if only D- Disney did not combine so much vulgarity with his genius. Ah. So there's there's the vulgarity thing again. Yep, and then yep. there's a conversation with Jane Douglas, which is in a, a piece she wrote called An Enduring Friendship, where it was a, a she went to visit him uh, in his uh, in his rooms in Oxford. They they talked the afternoon away, and he said to her, "Too bad we didn't know Walt Disney before he was spoiled, isn't it?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that you know that itself is such an interesting comment, you know uh, uh, that. You know, he's not characterizing Walt Disney. He's not demonizing him. You know, no. it's like he's not like he is what ruined everything, you know, but that he himself has been ruined, that um, he's been corrupted. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that he, you know, so so seeing what this guy is doing and like this machine that this guy has built, you know, like the the uh, the the vulgar plastic toy machine and uh, and everything else. Um, this is this is evidence of of his own personal corruption you know that he himself has been corrupted uh (laughs) which is interesting now he says um he also says one other thing uh, specific to snow white he he concluded a commentary on the film and this was this is out of his collected letters but i don't don't remember if this is in a review or not he says what might have come of it if the man had been educated or even brought up in a decent society (laughs) (laughs) like not america Yes, I know. That's, I was like, "Whoa, can we get a little snobby here?" Well, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. The other thing that he had a real problem with, uh, Lewis himself did, was, was with the. Uh, I'm trying to find it here. The, uh, there, I, I do have a quote uh, that he, he said specifically about the dwarves. He hated the dwarves. They were bloated, you know, f- kind of like featureless dwarves. They didn't act like dwarves that he considered dwarves. And, you know, what it made me think of are the dwarves that he populated Narnia with, which were right. actually a, a spectrum from good to bad. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, there is some differentiation there. They are definitely much more kind of Norse dwarves, uh, obviously, than than the mm-hmm. the um Snow White dwarves are, um, but yeah, that 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 accusation of vulgarity again is interesting, you know, and yeah. and the the sense I think that basically uh, now I, you know, of course, it's it's a you know neither of them ever sat down and did a long analysis or discussion of Snow White um, or Disney, so it's it, you know basically it's kind of left to us to sort of try to see what exactly they were talking about and even to an extent what exactly they meant by that particular accusation of vulgarity um and you know it seems to me thinking about snow white and you know thinking about the stuff that he says about uh, that tolkien says about fairy tales and on fairy stories as you mentioned mm-hmm. which as you say doesn't you know the text itself doesn't contain explicit references to disney but i think that we can see you know that he he criticizes explicitly the Victorian traditions mm-hmm. uh, of 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 you know fairy stories, and not just Victorian, um, but really like post medieval, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. you know, starting with Drayton and 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 whatnot. So he's criticizing Renaissance uh, uh, writers as well, um, you know, Shakespeare even. Um, but yeah, that's right. uh, but he 
Um, so anyway, so you know, he, he he's explicitly talking about ways in which this uh, this uh, this thing has been cheapened and vulgarized as well. He uses the word there, and you think of what he talks of when he talks about uh, pigwidgeon and what he calls pigwidgeonry, right? Right. And how the whole story is cheapened into like you know, the, instead of being made, um, and, you know, taking these 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 magical these wondrous creatures. Uh, you know, and they're sort of their their otherworldly home, taking them and turning them into basically sort of back garden creatures living inside common flowers. And so let's take their world and let's make it just sort of small parts of our mundane world, which only seems wondrous because it's seen from a slightly different perspective. That is, bumblebees <laughs> look a little bit more scary. And now, like, you're fighting, you can, like, duel with bumblebees and stuff when you're really small. So, oh, okay, I mean, that's kind of cool, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 definite. But then, of course, what he really objected to um, even more was adding on top of that this this really kind of sordid, you know, soap opera plot. Right. Right. Um, and. Uh, uh, and, and 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 so and that that seems to be one of the things that he was that he was objecting to when he called that stuff vulgar. And so right. again, you sort of think. What Disney is doing, how he is changing uh, Snow White, um, and you know the, the the ways, sort of the the trends in his adaptations uh, of of fairy stories, um, and I think it, just using Snow White as a as a case study, I think it's I think there's there's a lot of interesting things that we can see, the way that the uh, the sort of the position that that the romance plays, um, right the 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 way in which the dwarves themselves are really uh, well i don't know i was going to say cheapened but that's not even sort of a fair word um i mean they're made just purely comic relief well they're turned into keystone cops basically exactly exactly which of course is interesting as this is exactly what uh, you know one of the main things that a lot of tolkien fans complained about peter jackson's films, right? That they turned Gimli right. into comic relief. So again, it's like a dwarf thing, right? Dwarfs are funny, <laughs> I guess. Uh, and, uh, and and in both cases, you know, they, they were sort of the choice of the characters to be sacrificed for, for uh, I was going to say, almost pure comic relief. Gimli in the Lord of the Rings films is less pure comic relief than the dwarfs in, 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 in Snow White, certainly. True. Gimli at least has his moments. Um uh, and at least his at least his straight man is an elf, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Right? Exactly. But you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, I, I in the in the in the in my paper, we know you know Tolkien's cauldron of story from the on fairy stories. You know, and his his contention that you know these tales come from this cauldron, and you ladle out piece you know parts of it like he did in the Hobbit, right. basically. You know, right. the the Norse legends and whatnot. And what I I kind of created a metaphor for Disney was I called it the pressure cooker of film, uh, pressure cooker of film. I mean, he, you know, he had given what he needed to do to make this, this appeal to audiences and theaters. He stayed as close to this fairy tale, I think, as he could, but he needed to put in uh, tropes, if you will, that the audiences were used to. 
at that time, in at the time that Snow White came out, screwball comedies were very, very popular. And as we said, slapstick was very, very popular. Um, you know, romance, romantic comedies, you know, very, very popular. So you, literally, you know, I rewatched the the uh, animation, the movie, to do this paper. And once I had kind of become aware of those themes, boy, I mean, you could totally see them in the movie, and you could, you can understand. It's like he needed. He, this was his very first animated feature. Just a little business background is they needed to make this work. You know, the shorts weren't getting the money in the door anymore. Things were changing. Talkies had come. And, and you know, there was a lot of things going on in the industry that that Disney needed to have, uh, you know, a, a, a win with this in order to be able to stay in business. And so he was pretty much at sort of, if you want to call it, the mercy of the tastes of audiences. And to my mind, Jackson is kind of in the same boat. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, especially when you think about where Disney was with the fact that, again, this is the first feature-length animated film ever. So one of the things that he is sort of struggling with, or or rather sort of one of the things he's placed against, is the fact that a lot of people are going to come in assuming that, you know, that animation can't support like a full-length serious film, you know. Right. Animation That's what the might critics be... were saying at the time. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean there was, this is a huge gamble on his part. Exactly. Exactly. So you can see his motivation to connect it with, uh, you know, with more serious feature films to kind right. of have it be a recognizable sort of legitimate film story um, in the traditions that people would expect from from a serious film. But of course, you see, you know, what what's so fascinating about this is that that's exactly what Tolkien was doing, too, um, with the Hobbit. With a fairy film. story, right? Exactly. With, yeah, with right. this genre. With people saying, oh, fairy stories are fine for, like, short right. little children's stories, but why would anybody, um, you know, expect adults to take, you know, a novel length fantasy story seriously. Um, And of course, The Hobbit wasn't really built that way. It was built as a children's book and was sort of accepted as a children's book. Um, And, uh, you know, and of course, there were like polite jokes from his colleagues about why he was bothering writing this. Right. They'd ask him how his Hobbit, how's your Hobbit doing? (laughs) Right. Exactly. When he was on sabbatical. But but anyway, you know, so the, 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 but of course, this is exactly a question that he himself embraces more and more, and that you see him embracing in the on fairy stories uh lecture and essay um you know this question of well you know yes what why shouldn't fantasy be a perfectly right. legitimate uh mode in which to write for adults and uh, and that it is possible to have you know a perfectly like serious novel um which is also a work of fantasy. And again, you know, and of course that's ultimately what the challenge that he embraces in doing the Lord of the Rings. Right. Um, But again, it's fascinating to see. It's actually quite similar to the position. There are differences, but Disney was confronting the same kind of thing. Um, So yeah, I find that, I find that very, I find that very interesting. But again, one thing that I think we see a major difference in those two is and this I think is perhaps where we um where we can see some of the root of some of those accusations of vulgarity <clears throat> by mm-hmm. Tolkien and Lewis. Tolkien's response to this challenge of, you know, how can you do something that people don't sort of assume can't be done, uh, that is everybody assumes that grown-ups aren't going to be interested in reading a full-length novel of uh, fantasy. Um, and his response was not to cater to anybody. 
Like basically he wrote this book that, right, you know, right. makes like making no compromise with 20th century taste <laughs> or not, or novel conventions. And it's not that it's con- totally separated from the rest of 20th century literature. I mean, I know that some sometimes people sometimes Tolkien scholars who are medievalists will tend to speak uh, sort of somewhat hyperbolically as if, you know, Tolkien's works are simply medieval works that happen to be written in the 20th century and that there's this like enormous gulf between uh, the, you know, the concerns of the Lord of the Rings and the approach to the Lord of the Rings and the approach of other 20th century literature. And it's not true. Um, You know, Tolkien's work, was the product of his time um, to a greater extent than, than, you know, than often some people think, but nevertheless, you know, he was certainly not thinking about pleasing audiences. You know, he was not doing his approach to it was very different from Disney's Disney's, where Disney seemed to be like, okay, like what sells, what are the audiences looking for? How can I give it to them while, um, while still staying true to my vision. Exactly. And even the, even the, the choice of the fairy tale seems itself to be kind of bridging that particular gap, right? Like it's, it's a fairy tale. So that seems like an appropriate thing to have a cartoon about, but we're going to do a feature film on it, you know, which is, which is a much more serious, serious undertaking. So, um, so we're also going to, you know, make you think of like Fred Astaire and, and Errol Flynn and, uh, and, you know, during the film, um, so yeah, I think that that's that's um, that's that's what really fascinates yeah. me with these two. Is you said it, you know, they both kind of were sort of almost addressing the same thing, and they both had you know catalyzed enormous breakthroughs in their particular areas. And, and it's so interesting that it all it both are kind of in the fantasy genre. I mean, it just is really an interesting study. Yeah, yeah, it is. And but but again, their own attitudes are so different. You know, oh, yeah. Disney is trying to get rich. You know, he is trying to make a mercantile <laughs> success. You know, he he was, uh, you know, down to the, you know, like the Mary Poppins stuff you were talking about before yeah. where, you know, we see some of his some of his approaches being perhaps um, you know, not what everyone would consider scrupulous, but right. um and certainly which Tolkien did not consider scrupulous. Whereas Tolkien, on the other hand, is is not even – I mean, like, nobody was more surprised by the success of The Lord of the Rings than he was. And, you know, and he wouldn't – it wasn't even his idea originally to propose The Hobbit for publication. Um, right, you know, right. I mean, he wasn't even right. angling just, for that. Because somebody knew somebody. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was interesting when I read that. You know, it was just somebody uh, – a friend of the family who happened to know somebody at Allen and Unwin and then – you know, she sent it on to her friend, and then Rainer Unwin, the the ten year old son of the publisher, read it and gave his thumbs up. I mean, it was, what an interesting series of co- you know coincidences or or uh, serendipity. Right, right, yes, exactly. And I mean, I think that that's you know that is I think a big, um, it's a huge difference in their attitudes. That is the like the one person who says like, oh yeah, little if little plastic figurines, you know, will both help to promote the film and also, and which was brilliant because it it did, you know, and it does, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and also, you know, not not to mention help in the you know in the making of our company very rich. Um, that's you know basically. Disney was willing to do that. And as he said, you know, flamboyantly and, you know, as you cited before um, and perhaps exaggeratedly, but still, you know, like, oh, 
artistic vision? No, no, no. You know, like, <laughs> I'm just making movies here. Like, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm just I'm, movie maker. And you professors tell us, yeah. tell me what I do after I do it. <laughs> I don't do art, right? Yeah, right. I, right. I don't do art. <laughs> exactly. And again, you know, that that sort of sounds a little bit facetious to me, perhaps. But 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 I nevertheless, know. still, like Tolkien is the utter opposite of that, right? I mean, like somebody yeah, who was never thinking of the, you know, the it was so far from thinking about the merchandising possibilities, you know, who was, who was the, the opposite end of the spectrum from self-promotion um, and who was really thinking only of, you know, sort of the story and the thing that he wanted to do. And, you know, he wrote the book that he wanted to write and was really happy with it, really wanted to get it published. I mean, you know, it's, it's not, uh, you right. know, we, we can't over, you know, it's, it's, it's possible to overstate his lack of self-promotion. I mean, he was trying to get his book published. He was trying to talk publishers into it and he desperately wanted to see the Silmarillion published too, um, though he failed at that um, during his lifetime. But um, uh, but anyway, so so yeah, he, he 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 certainly wanted it to be published. But basically, he wrote the book that he wanted to write, and was shocked to find that millions of people also liked it. <laughs> um, um, but again, that I think is that I think is a, it, it has sort of necessarily a. Um, uh, a reflection in the actual products uh, of these people. And that I think that one of the things that he didn't, that he seemed not to like about Disney is just that he, he Disney was not, didn't have anything like the same relationship with the fairy tale tradition that Tolkien seemed right. to have. Um, that he just, that his, his, his stuff wasn't thoughtful in the same way. Like it was material that he was using, mm-hmm. um, and, and using well. And, but you know, he was not really, again, you think about his relationship with the fairy story tradition compared to Tolkien's relationship, the way that Tolkien understood his relationship with the fairy story tradition. Um, you know, I mean, it's like you read the first couple paragraphs of, of on fairy stories, you know, mm-hmm. and the, the kind of, uh, the kind of, I mean, what well, goes well beyond respect, um, you know, that he shows for, uh, for, for fairy tales and fairy stories in that opening. Um, you know, I propose to speak about fairy stories, though I am aware that this is a rash adventure. Fairy is a perilous land, and in it are pitfalls for the unwary and dungeons for the overbold. And overbold I may be accounted, for though I have been a lover of fairy stories since I learned to read, and have at times thought about them, I have not studied them professionally. I have been hardly more than a wandering explorer or trespasser in the land, full of wonder, but not of information. And it's just... That kind yeah. of tone, I, you know, you can't imagine Disney talking like that. No, no, not <laughs> at all. That's just, that's just not his relationship with this whole tradition and with the well, idea I, of fairy. And, you know, actually even the media – and, you know, I take – kind of media with a grain of salt in terms of the story of how Disney came up with Snow White because, you know, those kind of stories get spun. But the spun story, if you will, of why Disney thought of Snow White was because as a 15-year-old boy, he had seen Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in the silent movie version and had been enraptured by it. So we're not even talking about him having read the fairy story. Right. Right. And that's, you know, the thing that I find so interesting about that is but you'll notice that he he is spinning it a different way in the film itself. You think about the opening to uh to the Snow White film and it opens with 
the book sitting on the table next to a candle, right? And then, right. The, you know, the page right. is open and we have the illuminated manuscript. And it's not just like we see a book on the table and then the story starts. We, we're, we're, we're allowed to read two pages of the book right. before finally the scene shifts and the action um, sort of, you know, comes alive and ceases to be printed on a page on the screen. Um, but it, that seems to be, I mean, my reading of that is that, you know, we're being invited as, as, as an audience to see this film as the continuation, as the extension of the written story, you know, that we have this, you know, this semi medieval ish, Manuscript, right? It's mm-hmm. not because it, 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 it's it's not a scroll or anything. It's an actual book, right? It's a codex, but it's um, but anyway, it's you know, it's it's it, it's it's illuminated like a medieval work. So we've mm-hmm. got this old story, um, and then again, I you know the the cut from the book um, to isn't it, I think it's the Wicked Witch that we start with. Yeah, the, I think we start with the Wicked yeah, Witch and yeah. the mirror. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so the the segue there, um, it seems to me to invite us to to see the movie as in this kind of continuous tradition w- with the book. You know, this is the book now coming to life. We, st- cause he literally right. has a star. The, infer- the, the inference is, yeah, the inference there is what we're going to tell you is what's in the book. Yeah. And it's not a voiceover. We're just give- we're just shown silently the pictures on the page to the, 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 you know, the pages on the screen, two pages on the screen <laughs> or two, yeah, two, two, two sets of pages. And, and we're reading it there, everybody silently with just, well, okay, there's music, but anyway, you know, no, no voice. And then we see the picture happening. So again, our own private reading of the, of the words in the book on the screen becomes the film. So again, so, I mean, it, it seems to me pretty clear that what he, the message he's trying to give at the beginning of the film is like, oh, this is like, this is the Brothers Grimm come to life before your eyes. Um, but and this is one of the reasons I'm so cynical about movie studios. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's it's and 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 I I I would suspect that 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 Tolkien would really bristle at that implication because yeah. what he was seeing was not that, right? And it seems that what Disney was doing was not really that. Right. Um, that that's really just again kind of a kind of a a spin that he's that he's doing, um, and I don't know. I mean, perhaps Disney might be uh, might be defended uh you know on these on these fronts um from some of this stuff but but again i think that you know those kinds of things you know not really kind of thinking about this tradition um and instead just kind of coming in and i think you know people like lewis and tolkien would see him as just kind of ignorantly trampling on this tradition um you know for his own benefit in my my thinking now with the, you know, the recent Christopher Tolkien interview and, yes. you know, kind of the, the sp- conversations that that sparked, um, I thought when I was thinking about this paper again, I thought, well, you know, this is not a new, this is not new for Christopher to have these thoughts. You know, right. even before there was a problem with the, new, you know, the royalty issue and the courtrooms and stuff like that. I mean, he's, he's his father's literary executor. Do you think they didn't have conversations about this? Oh, I'm sure they did. Right. Exactly, and you know, it, you know, and as I've said, I think it was in our riddles in the dark episode that mm-hmm. I was talking about this. You know, I have all kinds of sympathy for how Christopher feels in the wake of you know the Peter Jackson films, because especially when you put it in the context, you know, thinking back to all this Snow White stuff and the Disney stuff, 
what he's seeing has got to be what he can, what Tolkien himself would have considered a kind of nightmare right. to see his own story. Now, now he's, he's now he, Christopher Tolkien, 75 years later is surrounded by little plastic, cheap plastic figurines of Tolkien. Asbestos dispensers and Lego. Exactly. <laughs> you know, we've got Lego Shelob and Pez Gollum and, 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 yeah, you know, little Thorin figurines. And, you know, again, like, you know, I don't intend any of this necessarily as, as a, you know, as a, you know, I'm not saying that that's a, that's a bad thing, but again, thinking, you know, going back into sort of Tolkien's own perspective, here he is, with his, um, with his Hobbit, and then later with his Lord of the Rings, and his relationship with his work and his the way that his work is an expression of his relationship, uh, you know, with these older traditions and everything, um, and then him looking over at Disney and being like, "Oh man, that is so vulgar. That is so crass. Mm-hmm. Like this guy is just trying to cash in on this stuff and, um, and you know, and not taking it seriously, and then for Tolkien's own work to undergo." You know what? What to Christopher has got to be a similar exactly. thing, and, and even the, exactly the same. suppose you know, even the you know the questionable ethics of the studio, right. kind of thing. Exactly. You know, I mean that whole experience. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, now all of a sudden they're Mary Poppins, right? I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's not the same thing. It's not the same situation. But, um, but yeah, exactly to the to the point where the you know where the studio did famously try to not honor the the. The royalties contract that's right. That's um, right that Tolkien did sign um, so anyway it's 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 um, it does kind of fill in a little bit you know as to yeah. why it, a little bit more I mean we were already sort of in sympathy with you know understanding what Chris where Christopher was coming from but knowing this really even adds a little bit more of that backstory yeah no I think so and I think you know like I said I find it very understandable I mean you know I'll say it again what I said before ultimately I don't the thing that I don't agree with Christopher on the thing that I find a little bit sad i guess is that no i i guess i would go so far as to say that i find it sad is that basically you know he expressed in this in this interview with lamond that he had you know that he feels that now the story has been cheapened to the point where you know its impact is now zero and he can't right. even bear to look at it anymore you know what has been done to the story in the mind you know in the eyes of of the general public um and that's the that's the place where I strongly disagree with Christopher, and that's and what I find sad is that you know I think that what he's missing, what he's not seeing, and 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 I mean literally missing what he's not seeing, what he probably has not experienced much himself, um, is basically conversations with people who have been introduced to Tolkien by the by the films, um, and you know for whom the films did. Even even if you want to say that the films depict this vulgarized, uh, you know, highly cheapened uh, version of Tolkien's stories, even if you grant that fact, nevertheless, the vulgarized, cheapened version of the story retains enough power to draw people to read the right. books and to and has served as the gateway for thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are now people that I greatly respect as Tolkien scholars and as Tolkien readers. Um, right. You know, and that's it's and 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 this is going to be more true as time goes on. I mean, twenty years from now. Um. It may well be that the majority, you know, I mean, it will almost certainly be that the majority of like, you know, of serious Tolkien scholars and, you know, readers and students of Tolkien will have seen Peter Jackson's films before they read the books. That's true. Now, what do you mean? They were 
books before the movie? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, did they did, did they write a book version of those? Um, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But but uh, but anyway. So so yeah. I, I, and that I think is the thing that Christopher Tolkien is missing. That that you know. I, I basically I don't think their impact has been reduced to zero at all. Um, I have seen them retain a very powerful impact and have the films serve as, you know, the introduction, an effective introduction um, to get people to, to read and to love those books who never would have done otherwise. Um, and, you know, for that, I, I, you know, I have said and will always say that no matter how much you know, any individual Tolkien fan, I know there are people who loathe the films and I am very sympathetic to many of the things that they have, many of the criticisms that they have to make of the films. I totally get that. But at the end of the day, I don't think you can sit down and not say the films have been a net benefit for Tolkien studies. I mean, they they have, I think that's very demonstrable. And I'll even say something more, even more revolutionary, which is I think if it wasn't for Walt Disney, I would never have read Lord of the Rings. And the reason I say that is because, I mean, I was raised, I think, let's see, Sleeping Beauty was, that was probably really the first, you know, feature length animation that I remember as a really little girl. And I love Sleeping Beauty and I, you know, watched it, watched it, watched it. And that actually, Disney's uh, uh, fairy tale Movies actually, as I got older, I ended up reading the original Grimm and Anderson fairy tales, which I right. totally fell in love with. Right. And, and so, at a very young age, you know, I really loved fairy tale and fantasy. And so, when the Ace paperback—I actually did read the Ace paperback versions of Lord of the Rings came first, The Hobbit, and then Lord of the Rings came in. I ate it up, and I mean, you know, life life has never been the same since. So. Right, right, <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's actually really interesting. You think about that because I mean, it is it, that is another thing that is unquestionably true. Um, you know, all of the discussion of fairy tales and fairy stories in those Victorian, like, you know, that Tolkien talks about it on fairy stories mm-hmm. and the Lang tradition and everything else. I mean, let's face it, that's almost dead in our society. Right. I mean, you know, kids who have grown up within the last 20 years, where do they encounter fairy tales outside of Disney? I mean, you can find books about them, but even those are getting rarer. That is like ones that don't feature Disney characters. Um, you know, the actual like Disney's drawings. Um, it's, they are not, it is no longer, you know, one of the common traditions. I, and I know there'll be exceptions. And, you know, as soon as I say this, like, uh, you know, a thousand people will email me and say, <laughs> I was raised on the Brothers Grimm. I mean, and I don't doubt that it, that, that, that there are people who do that, but it is not any more part of our culture outside of Disney. So, in right. fact, that fairy tradition, which Tolkien loved so much um, and which he showed so much respect or even reverence for in on fairy stories and which he clearly felt was being trampled on by Disney, that tradition, Disney is its primary legacy, is its primary transmitter right. now. It would Disney's kind of like the first dead. contact. Yes, it would for, be almost dead you know. in our culture if not for Disney. And the idea, I mean... Just imagining Tolkien's response, if, you know, in like 1937 or like 1940 or something, you could tell Tolkien, okay, 60 years from now, um, Disney's versions are the, is like, Disney is going to be solely responsible for the fact that any, like, American children, certainly, uh, even know who Snow White or Cinderella, uh, you know, are. Or dwarves. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> heck, Robin Hood even for crying out yes, loud. That's true. Um, but uh, I mean, there's there's a little bit more because that still makes it into grown up films. But um, uh, but anyway, apart from that, uh, you know, it's it, to, to 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 say, you know, Disney is going to be the primary and in many cases, even maybe the majority of cases, the sole transmitter of this fairy story tradition um, to the modern generation. Like Tolkien would have wept (laughs) to be told that. He would have wept and or raged to to be told that. Um, And yet, um, you know, as you say, Nevertheless, like still some fruit is born of that, you right. know, and uh, and again, I, so I, I think that those those parallels are really interesting, you know, that that it's it's uh, um, like, you know, vulgarized. Yes, but it's, it's still, you know, the, the stories still do sort of retain that power. And once you find out like, oh, you know, if you really like this story, there are these other stories. Right. You know, there are these right. other versions. Uh, there are these older versions. There are these guys called the Brothers Grimm. Um uh, then, uh, then again, you 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 are you you sort of discover things, and um, anyway, but it's it is it is a really fascinating parallel. Um, it really is. I mean, I just found it very interesting. I do have one other thing I wanted to give an homage to Dr. Tolkien for. You know how we've talked about, and you've mentioned before, that he was kind of known to be not the greatest lecturer. You know, he kind of mumbled, and um, as as sometimes students would find it hard, yes. you know, to understand what he was saying and whatnot. I, I wanted to give another side to this that's out of the Tolkien Family album, um, a book that was written by Priscilla, uh, John and Priscilla Tolkien. And um, it's when he's younger, so he may very well have mumbled later. But um, this reminded me very much of Disney, especially when when I read the part about Disney acting out Snow White for his animators, um, a, one of his former students wrote, he would turn, he would turn a le- oh, and this is specifically around things like uh, uh, his reciting Beowulf or Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Right. He would turn a lecture room into a mead hall in which he was the bard and we were the feasting, listening guests. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think, I mean, I, it, I, I know that... Um... And there are certainly, you know, others who sort of reflected on what a transformative experience it was being in his lectures. You know, I think of the comments that, um, uh, you know, the poet W.H. Auden made about this. Um, but yes, it's true that his he, he was not very prepossessing uh, in his he spoke really quickly and was often difficult for people to understand. Right. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. Another, it's it is very interesting. You know, I think there is a really good book in this that is like there needs to be a really good book (laughs) written on Tolkien and Disney I mean this this it would be a fascinating study to to really kind of dig into you know both sort of their stories their approaches that you know sort of to start with the parallels between them and their relationship with with fairy stories and their basically sort of being pioneers in in their genres and these very very similar pioneers, as we said, you know, sort of bringing, bringing uh, fairy stories to life in a, you know, it, or you know, like you know, fairy stories and fantasy to life in a genre which was considered to be, you know, sort of a serious grown-up genre, right. you know, the novel right. or the feature film. Right. Um, anyway, I agree with you. I think yeah, there's a lot more to this. Start really. from there and then kind of talk about their their careers, their approaches, their philosophies, sort of yeah. compare and contrast their works. Um, you know, look at their their different relationships with the traditions that they were working. I mean, this this 
this would be a big book, but it would be really cool. <laughs> somebody needs to write this. I don't have time to write this book, but somebody needs to write this book. So, so oh, definitely. well, you planted the, you know, I'm, I'm an old Disney kid from way back. You couldn't get the ears off my head when I was like four <laughs> and five years old, you know, so, uh, so this would definitely be, I mean, I really enjoyed doing, I mean, you saw my, yeah, I did a lot of research on this. Yeah. And it was just a fascinating, fascinating thing. So, you know, the next time I have free time, um, exactly. Maybe I'll work on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you should. You should. <laughs> Somebody should. It's got. It, it should be done. I think you know. It must be told. It's a story that must be told. It is a story that must be told. It's it's something that I think a lot of people. It's. I mean, once you glance at it, it's so obvious. Yeah. You know the connections oh, yeah. between them, but yet it's very rarely discussed. And like I say, yeah, the silences are loud. I just yes. the parts that we don't know and the things that aren't published or said about this coincidence are loud in my ears you know right. i mean i just i just think there was more said or written that just because you know one of the things and i was reading rereading tolkien's will because i got a copy of his will for this paper too and one of the things that he gives you know christopher uh permission to do which I, i'm sure is not unusual as his literary executor is not only to take his pot his work posthumously and do what he wants to in terms of modifying and editing it but also to destroy work that he feels needs to be destroyed. And I, that sentence kind of popped out at me because I could just see Tolkien's lawyers are telling Christopher, we really don't want any of this stuff about Disney coming to light because it could be a big lawsuit with Disney. You know, it's like, don't do that. Just get rid of this stuff. You know what I mean? I just could see that because Tolkien doesn't strike me as a person that was very um, reticent in his opinions. No, no, he wasn't. And of course, exactly the kinds of quotations that you were reading from both Lewis and Tolkien was also very much like it's not just the, that the two of them were sort of like particularly acerbic or cranky. That's kind of it was like part of the part of being, you Scholars, know, a right? critic. Yeah, part of being. I mean, you you read um, scholarship from the first half of the 20th century. And it's full of choice remarks like that. I mean, when they right. when they criticize something, they really criticize something, you know. <laughs> and and uh, you know, they, they were not just for being polite, uh, for the sake of being polite. Um, so yeah, no, they would just they would just eviscerate things. Um, so yeah, that that that's 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 actually a very sort of familiar tone. Yeah. Um, so I'm a. I'm thinking that either anything Tolkien wrote or, you know, anything he, any way he went on record with Disney other than what we've already got has either been very deeply or literally does not exist anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, uh, th thank you very much for joining me. This has been a, a fun conversation. Hopefully oh, the beginning of a larger project. We hope to sort of see more from this. I hope uh, certainly that, uh, that somebody does it. But anyway, thank you very much uh, for joining us here today. That was fun. Yeah, it was fun for me too, and I got plenty more pipe weeds. So you know, happy to do it again <laughs> on some other topic. Yes, lots more figurative pipe pipe, pipe weeds. So excellent. <laughs> okay, well, very good. Well, so uh, 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 thanks for listening, everybody, and Godspeed. <laughs> <laughs>